can turn to Colossians chapter 2 this morning. Colossians chapter 2. We're finding ourselves in verse 16 of this chapter. As we have been studying together on the supremacy of Christ, that He is over everything, we have mentioned before that the Colossian church was faced with heretical teachings that were creeping in, that there was a strange combination, a syncretistic combination of both legalistic Judaism and mystic pre-Gnostic teachings. And Paul, as a way to stop this philosophy from gaining ground in the, Corinthian, in the Colossian church, promoted to the Colossian believers this one singular doctrine, Christ is over all, Christ is supreme, Christ is preeminent. And it's when we embrace that truth for ourselves that we find ourselves strong against the temptation of false teaching. But in our passage this morning, Paul gives the most specific confrontation of the false teaching that he has done thus far, in fact, in the entire letter. It's here that he starts to call out the details of this false teaching, the threats to the Colossian believers. And it's a passage that will equip us as we seek to stay faithful to the gospel. A.W. Tozer once wrote that in our constant struggle to believe, we are likely to overlook the simple fact that a bit of healthy disbelief is sometimes as needful as faith to the welfare of our souls. He says, I would go further and say that we would do well to cultivate a reverent skepticism. It will keep us out of a thousand bogs and quagmires where others who lack it sometimes find themselves. It is no sin to doubt some things. It may even be fatal to believe everything. He says, faith never means gullibility. The man who believes everything is as far from God as the man who refuses to believe anything. We need to, be aware, be, we need to beware not just of blatant false teaching and heresies, but of anything, anything that takes away from the supremacy of Jesus Christ. If it causes us to rely on our works instead of Christ, stay away. If it feeds our pride instead of glorifying Christ, stay away. As we looked at last week, if it does not depend on Jesus to work, trash it. And if this is our approach, we cannot limit our search to the cults and false religions out there, but we must humbly and carefully examine how these threats easily and comfortably thrive within the church and within our own hearts. A.W. Tozer said elsewhere, error never looks so innocent as when it is found in the sanctuary. Look with me in Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 16. Paul says, So let no one judge you in food or in drink, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Christ to the basic principles of the world, why, as though living in the world, do you submit yourselves to regulations? Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom and self-imposed religion and false humility and neglect of the body 
but they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray and ask God to guide us through his word this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and clarity that it gives. As we find ourselves in a world filled with error, most often subtle and deceptive, give us such a confidence and assurance in your truth that we can stay strong against the deception of false teaching. Give us a discernment to know what is according to Christ and not according to Christ. And give us discernment as we look into your word this morning. In your son's name we pray. Amen. As we look at this passage this morning, we'll find that Paul confronts the two components of the false teaching. I mentioned that the false teaching comprised of the syncretistic blend of both Judaistic legalism and this mystic pre-Gnostic idea. In verses 16 through 19 contains two commands. We see the first command in verse 16 where he says, let no one judge you, let no one pass judgment on you, and then is followed by the elements of legalistic Judaism. And then the next command is let no one disqualify you, let no one rob rob you of your reward, and is followed by elements of the pre-Gnostic mysticism. And so he confronts, confronts both components and then in verses 20 through 23, which they act as a summary of verses 16 through 19, highlighting both the Judaistic elements and the Gnostic elements and point out the fault of both, exposing why they don't work. As we look at this passage together, remember that all of these elements were most likely combined into one package. So he's not calling out more than one false teaching that's present. He's calling out one false teaching with multiple dimensions. And I believe in the passage this morning, he's going to make the point that these teachings are not worth it. He's going to expose, number one, what makes false teaching false teaching, why they work, and why we should not fall for them. Let's see, first of all, in our passage, why false teaching is hard to resist. Look with me in verse 16 through 17, where he begins this treatment of the false teaching. He says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. Part of the false teaching included legalistic practices of Judaism, strict adherence to dietary laws and observance of holy days, including the Sabbath. And one might wonder, why would such teachings be attractive? Have you ever wondered why in the world would adding extra regulations to your life be a compelling teaching? We prefer less regulations. We don't want to add to it. So why were such teachings attractive? Why were people falling for these extra regulations? I think the answer is found in Paul's warning to them. He says, let no one judge you. Let no one pass judgment on you in regard to these things. In other words, you, if you are persuaded to add extra regulations to your faith because of the judgment of others, what are you driven by? Well, you're driven by fear. And I believe that is what he's pointing out here in verses 16 through 17, that the reason why false teaching is hard to resist is uh, because of the persuasiveness of fear. While following extra regulations doesn't appeal to our sinful flesh, the pressure of conforming certainly does. The fear of falling short, of missing the mark, of failing, that is persuasive. And when a system of teaching is elevated, one that adds extra non-biblical obligations to the one to, to, and one that does not depend on Jesus to work, you will find that the fear of judgment is most often a tool used to compel people to do what they otherwise would not do. 
All you have to do is convince people that your list of requirements is what is necessary to please God and that violating these requirements is a sin against God. Pass judgment on those who push back and embrace those who conform. I believe this passage is showing us that judgment can be a powerful tool. Whether, the, whether, you feel, whether it's the feel of the judgmental looks of others, we ponder whether or not we should conform to it in order to fit in better with the world, to get with the program, to be on the right side of history. This judgmental attitude creates pressure to give in, the threat of being disregarded by others, being viewed as a lost cause, and most of all, for those that have a genuine desire to please the Lord, the thought of displeasing Him proves to be too heavy of a burden to bear. And so false teaching is hard to resist because oftentimes fear will be the tool to compel people to conform. You may ask, well, does fear have any place in the Christian life? Well, absolutely. We are to fear God. In a sense, we should have a healthy fear of his chastisement when we break his clear, revealed word. He does have requirements listed for us in Scripture, and we are called to follow them. But God wants, wants our consciences bound by the clear word of God, not by the fear-inducing judgment of another human being. And by way of application for us, it's good for us to remember that if a church culture is characterized by judgment, then it is a culture driven by fear. A fear to conform, a fear of disappointing, a fear of not being accepted. But Christ gives us a greater motivation, not of fear, but of love, that his love constrains us, that we read in 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with judgment, but whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So fear is a powerful tool for false teachers, but that is not the only tool that they use. We see the persuasiveness of fear in verses 16 through 17 in connection with these legalistic Judaistic practices. But in verses 18 through 19, I believe we see the persuasiveness of pride. In verse 18, Paul focuses on these pre-Gnostic and mystic elements of this false teaching. The false teachers were finding pleasure in and insisting on certain practices that supposedly gave them access to higher realms of insight. We see in verses 18 through 19 that they are insisting on some things. They're insisting on self-abasement. Your English version might say something like voluntary humility, false humility, pious self-denial, or asceticism. The Greek word itself is simply an ambiguous word for humility. In fact, the same word that's often used positively in other passages of Scripture. Since context helps determine meaning, it's clear that Paul is using the term humility in the negative sense. Something other than a genuine spirit of humility, if you skip down in verse 23 of our passage, we see the same word again, humility, but combined with severe treatment of the body, leading us to conclude this is a self-imposed asceticism or a self-humiliation. Context also tells us that this is a false humility, since verse 18 describes the false teachers as puffed up. And so they're espousing, they're promoting this false sense of humility, the severity to the body, this asceticism, in order to gain something. And what are they offering that they can gain? this access to a visionary realm. We see this described in two ways. It talks about the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, that these false teachers were waxing eloquent about their visions that they had experienced in which they venerated or even worshipped heavenly beings. 
And you can almost hear them in the context of the Colossian church going on in detail about these visions, taking pleasure and voicing just how incredible of an experience that it is. They use detailed anecdotes to whet the appetites of their hearers. And the self-abasement was the means by which you gained access to this visionary realm. By putting off the physical body and denying yourself of comforts, you elevate yourself to a higher plane, unencumbered by physical limitations. Most likely, the asceticism is the observance of those Judaistic practices that were referenced earlier. We may ask the question, well, how does this show up in our churches today? Most likely, you didn't meet someone in the church today who's going on in detail about this vision that they experienced where they're worshiping an angel. So in what sense does this, is this a threat to our church today? Well, we could think of extreme examples, like, for instance, Heaven's Gate cult that was founded in 1974 by Bonnie Nettles and Marshall Applewhite, which is based on a strange blend of Christianity, New Age, and UFO religion. The teaching of this cult offered the way leading to membership into the kingdom of heaven by putting off all, quote, mammalian ways. They could go through a metamorphic transition from human to level above human, a higher level by leaving this world behind. On their official website, which is still accessible, by the way, you can go to the Heaven's Gate website, not that I should suggest that you do, but it's, it's, if you want to see a great example of cheesy 90s era website design, you can go and check out their website. Yeah, on their official website, which is, it states this, quote, leaving behind this world includes family, sensuality, selfish desires, your human mind, and even your human body, if it be required of you, all mammalian ways, thinking, and behavior. In fact, this movement led to a mass suicide of the leader and about 39 of his followers. But such examples do little to impact us, who I hope would find such cultish teachings uncompelling. We, we hear an example like that and we think, that's strange. So at its core, what is compelling about this false teaching? Let's, let's think less about the worship of angels and visionary realms, so to speak, and think about what was the incentive, what made this teaching attractive? Well, the allure of this teaching is its supposed access to higher knowledge or deeper truth, as these false teachers are taking great pleasure in sharing the details of this hidden access, painting a picture so impressive that it seems worth to go through the self-debasement required to reach that level. So what are they offering? They're offering something that you have never experienced. I said at the beginning of this series that the allurement of this false teaching was either you should be doing more, or two, you could experience more than you already are. But Paul exposes their true motivation. While they are going on in detail about their visions, they are simply being filled with their own delusions, preoccupied by their sensuous minds. They are puffed up. If you look in verse 18, it says, after going on in detail about visions, they're puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. In short, they are motivated by pride, and they appeal to the pride of the listeners. If false teaching is subtle and deceptive, we should, seek to see, we should expect to see elements slip into mainstream Christianity. In what sense do teachings appeal to the pride of believers, of offering something deeper than what they have already received in Christ? 
We could go to seemingly harmless teachings like higher life theology or Keswick theology that points to a second distinct work of grace in the life of the Christian after salvation that places him in a deeper relationship with God. There's, there's many Christians that say you get saved, but then you experience a second work of grace later in your life that plunges you deeper into greater knowledge and experience in your walk with Christ. Rather than saying all of Christ is given to you right at the beginning, or to say that the baptism of the Spirit is a second work of grace after salvation, signified by speaking in tongues that bring a Christian into deeper spiritual walk, I think to those teachings, the book of Colossians would say, you already have the Spirit. You already have all of the grace that you need. You have Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the whole point of this book. To sit here and, as a Christian and say uh, that there's something that Christ has not given me. That there's something, that, that, that a, a hidden key, a hidden message that's going to unlock a deeper truth goes against the pure and simple meaning of the gospel. Paul is saying you have everything. You have all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, and you can grow in your knowledge of it. This subtle message of here's how you can get more than what God has already given you finds itself in seemingly harmless places. It's something that we all fall for, in one shape or form in our Christian life. Sarah Young is the author of an incredibly popular devotional series called Jesus Calling. I'm sure you've heard of it. These devotional, in these devotionals, Young writes letters of encouragement from Jesus to you. In her introduction, she says that she had received these messages from God. She says, quote, I knew that God communicated with me through the Bible, but I yearned for more. Now, now stop. Think about that statement for a second. God communicated with me through the Bible, but I wanted more. Increasingly, I wanted to hear what God had to say to me personally on a given day. Young upholds the scripture as inerrant and authoritative, she says multiple times. But according to herself, she wanted more than that. She says later on, quote, this practice of listening to God has increased my intimacy with him more than any other spiritual discipline. Perhaps unintentionally, she declares the scripture as insufficient and teaches that listening for God's personal message to you is a far more profitable discipline than simply reading God's word. In fact, in the first edition of her book, she reveals that the inspiration for her book came from another book called God Calling, written by two women who practice the occultic ritual of automatic writing, where you become a passive vehicle for whatever supernatural message is being given to you. In fact, if you pick up a book of Jesus Calling Now, references to that earlier book is removed. While Young seems well-intentioned and seeks to generally uphold orthodox theology, I fear that while she's going on in detail about visions, she's simply being puffed up with her own imaginations. Imaginations that claim to be the very words of Jesus and imaginations that yield a pretty impressive profit for her. Beware of subtle Christian teachings that make us discontent with what God has already given us. An appeal to our pride, our desire to get more than what we have been given. The result is not deeper knowledge, but rather a puffed up mind. My goal here is not to find heresy under every rock or create a spiritual paranoia. If you have read and enjoyed Jesus' calling, I'm not calling you a heretic. But else, and I don't want you driven by fear. 
But as you grow in your relationship with Christ and your knowledge of his word, don't automatically accept the latest thing or the popular book simply because others found it helpful. Every questionable idea will have enough scripture in it to help some people in some way. Our desire is to be so rooted in Christ and his word that our ability to discern ideas and movements grow stronger, to be able to tell if something is not according to Christ. And there are plenty of solid biblical resources available to you and for us, most of all the scripture itself, where we don't have to embrace teachings that subtly drift from the supremacy of Christ. So why is false teaching persuasive? Because it appeals to our fear and it appeals to our pride. Pride says, look what happens if you join. Fear says, look what you lose if you leave. In other words, in false teaching, pride is the incentive and fear is the threat. And yet, pride will always masquerade as humility and fear will always masquerade as piety. Let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one disqualify you. False teaching is effective because it appeals to our own fleshly impulses of pride and of fear. Paul continues in his passage to point out why false teaching just isn't that great. As we revisit verses 16 through 19, we see Paul pull back the curtain on both fear and pride. And he compares each one to Jesus Christ and shows how Jesus is better. And when you compare them and consider who Christ is, the persuasiveness of fear and of pride lose their power. Let's see how he does this in our passage. In verse 16, he points out the Judaistic legalistic practices that were driven by fear. In verse 17, he exposes them. Look in verse 17 with me. He says, These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. False teachers were taking Old Testament regulations, regulations that were meant to point to Jesus, and requiring them in addition to Jesus. They were treating the shadow as important as a substance. These, these Old Testament regulations and laws were found within Scripture. But it's very easy to take Scripture and pull it out of its intended purpose and context and uphold it as the standard itself instead of using it in its intended way to point to who Christ is. It's like sniffing the food instead of eating it, shadow versus substance. It's like thinking the movie trailer is the whole movie. They were taking clear commands from Scripture, removing it from its context and purpose, commands that were fulfilled in Christ and were presenting them as commandments that must be fulfilled in us. Galatians chapter 3, verses 24 through 25 points out this, this relationship between the Old Testament law and Christ where Paul says, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. And as a result, by elevating shadow over substance, it becomes based on works rather than faith in Christ's finished work. Why is false teaching not that great? Because it makes you settle for less. It robs you of the true prize. It gets you excited about a shadow when you could have Jesus. The persuasiveness of fear compels you to depend on human effort, settling for the shadow. But when you realize that Jesus took your record of debt, 
that stood against you and obeyed the law on your behalf, that he is the very fulfillment of what the Old Testament anticipated, and that we can be justified by faith in Christ rather than the deeds of the law, why would you settle for the shadow when you have the substance? And Paul's trying to show the Colossians, listen, they're appealing to your fear. They're casting judgment on you because you are not impressive as them in the adherence to the law. But don't you see, they're the ones who are missing out. They are settling for a shadow when you have the fulfillment of the law. You have Christ. As we continue to look at what makes false teaching not that great, we see shadow versus substance in verse 17. But as he shifts gears and focuses on the pre-Gnostic mystic elements, he gives another contrast. Look down with me in verse 19. Those who were teaching this mystic, pre-Gnostic teaching were being puffed up without reason by their sensuous mind. We see at the end of verse 18. In verse 19, they're not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grow with a growth that is from God. We see two different types of growth described. We see basically a big head versus a growing body. These false teachers were not holding fast to the head, Christ. They were, they were showing, they were setting forth for you these visionary realms, access to worshiping angels and all these things. And they gave perhaps an illusion of growth, but it was all up here. Their growth is simply a puffed up mind. They were not holding fast to the head. And whenever you detach yourself from the very source of growth, the only way in which you will grow is in your pride. Here's a good rule of thumb. If it feeds your pride, it's false teaching. Pride offers the illusion of growth, but Christ offers genuine growth. And only those who hold fast to the head, hold fast to Christ, enjoy a growth that is from God. Jesus said in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That's exactly what we learned last week, that if it does not depend on Jesus to work, it is false teaching. And Jesus says, if, if you are not connected to me, if you do not have a relationship with me, you can do nothing. Genuine growth comes from God, not our own minds. In 2015, Joel Osteen published his book entitled, The Power of I Am. Now, when you see the words I am, at least for me, I assume that it's referring to God, the great I am. But as I turned the book over and read the description, I was shocked. I perhaps shouldn't have been. The back of the book says this, Transform your self-image and embrace the power of positive thinking with two simple words. Declare, I am, and celebrate the life that God has created for you. Whatever follows the words, I am, will always come looking for you. So when you go through the day saying, I am blessed, blessings will pursue you. I am talented, talents will follow you. I am healthy, Health heads your way. I am strong. Strength tracks you down. You can choose to rise to a new level and invite God's goodness by focusing on these two words. I am. So for Osteen, 
The power of I am is found in our own thinking, not in the all-powerful great I am. Can you see how that feeds your pride? Gives you the illusion of growth, but only produces a puffed up mind? I mean, I could say I am talented all day long, but I will not make it to the NBA. (laughs) There's only so much that a puffed up mind can do. And Paul gives us a far better growth that only God can give. Does faith Does your faith feed your pride or feed your soul? You can be puffed up with pride or you can be sustained by Christ who is nourished and knit together. And as a member of the body of Christ, you have everything you need to find fullness and growth. So why is false teaching not that great? It makes you settle for shadow versus substance. It gives you a big head versus genuine growth. Thirdly and finally, I want us to see why false teaching doesn't work. In these last three verses, Paul drives it home. He has warned of the persuasiveness of false teaching, and he has exposed the emptiness of false teaching. And now he confronts us with a probing question, verses 20 through 22. If with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, Do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. He gives us some encouragements here, some warnings. Number one, don't submit to what you have been saved from. He sums up everything he has just said and says, if this is true, why are you doing this? The if could be rendered as since. Since with Christ you died. He's reminding them of the truth and reality of their salvation. If with Christ you died, references Colossians chapter 2, verse 12, where we have been buried with him in baptism. He says, you have been united to Christ. You have died to yourself. You are living to Christ. And if you have died, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world, referencing verse 8 of the same passage, where he exposes the empty deceit of philosophy, And he he actually references verse 8 again when he says later on that these regulations are according to human precepts and teachings. He says, if that's the case, why are you submitting to these regulations that the false teachings are imposing upon you? He's pointing us back to our salvation and saying, if you have died to your own works, if you have died to your own effort, if, if you have died to your own pride and your own fear, why are you submitting to the teachings that are appealing to those very things that you have been saved from? You don't have to. Part of the power of false teaching is compelling you and obliging you to follow out of fear of condemnation. And Paul frees us from that. He says, you're not obliged to them. You've died to that. Why are you following these regulations, submitting to these regulations, if you have been already died with Christ? He says, don't submit to what you've already been saved from, but secondly, don't be deceived by what doesn't work. Look in verse 23. These false teachings have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion in asceticism and severity to the body. But here's the problem. They look so good. They look so wise. They look so humble. They look good, but they don't work. 
They point to the fact that everyone's common problem is the indulgence of the flesh. We have a sin problem. But the problem with false teaching is while they look good, they just don't work. A fundamental characteristic of false teaching is that it tries to pr produce inward change by external means rather than producing external change through internal means. You can take it to the bank that fleshly desires will always thrive under the cloak of man-made religion while giving the appearance of spirituality, humility, and piety. We see this example in the Pharisees, don't we? That cleaned the outside of the cup, Jesus said. But inwardly, they were full of, full of greed and self-indulgence. And no, mat no, matter of, no, no manner of outward externality and, 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 and legalistic rule-keeping would change that internal problem. Mormonism is a cult that looks clean and moral on the outside. But as you dig into it, you realize that it's motivated by pride and intimidates with fear. That the good appearance hides the sin underneath. The state of Utah, the home really of Mormonism, has some interesting statistics that reflect this. Number one, they have some of the highest percentage of plastic surgery in the country, outward image, and one of the highest suicide rates among young people in the country. And if you look at, at the, the package that Mormonism presents, what is presented? A very clean and moral and family-oriented outward appearance, but underneath is death. It is of no use in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It will always look effective and wise, but you can be sure that if you have a teaching that is held up by human standards, if it motivates you through fear of judgment and feeds your pride, not only will it be ineffective in stopping your flesh, it will actually strengthen your flesh. Because you're using human impulses to persuade people toward human ideas. This danger is not limited to pagan cults and anti-Christian movements. If empty and ineffective philosophy is plausible and good-looking and has the appearance of wisdom, then we're bound to find it in our churches. There are ways in which all of us fall prey to this teaching. Bill Gothard was an influential leader, speaker, and writer who founded the Institutes and Basic Life Principles, which reached the height of its popularity in the 1970s. This was not an obscure outlying movement, some of his speaking events held more than 10,000 attendees for a week-long conference. And really, the allure of his teaching was one of guaranteed security, drawing on parents' heartfelt and sincere desire to raise their kids in the ways of the Lord and protect them from evil influences. And especially for parents of the 1970s who saw the chaos in their culture we and were desperately seeking structure and character and clarity for their children. It's no wonder why Gothard's system was powerful and attractive. Gothard set forward seven biblical principles that he declared to be universal and non-negotiable. The principles of desire, I'm sorry, design, authority, responsibility, ownership, suffering, freedom, and success. And he always backed up these principles with an abundance of scripture. But with these principles, he offered a guarantee to the extent that a family follows these seven principles, 
they would enjoy security, success, and godly children. Gother declared in his basic seminars, quote, you can know without a shadow of a doubt that we have the answer to conquer any habit you have. But along with his guarantee came a fearful warning because Gother presented life as a series of cause and effect relationships, tracing every problem one experiences to the violation of one or more of his seven principles. He said, quote, you are having a problem here because you violated a principle here. Some examples that he gave, if a father's kid, kids were not respecting him, it was traced back to his own disrespect for his parents. He told girls that if they did not respect their own parents, that God would one day give them a harsh husband. He said, quote, girls, you can meet the most sweetest, gentlest fellow in the world, but if you have not allowed God to build character in your life through your parents, then God will change the heart of your husband. Listen to the following quote from his basic seminar. He says, quote, Christianity at its truest sense, built upon the principles of God's word, is the only way of life. And to the degree that an individual or a couple or a family or a business or a nation follows God's principles, the principles of Christianity, to that degree, they will experience wealth, health, and wisdom. To the degree that they do not, they experience traceable conflict. Now, did you catch anything off in that quote? Number one, it doesn't depend on Jesus, does it? Because he applies it universally, individuals, couples, families, businesses, nations. And it preaches a health and wealth message through the following of God's laws. If you follow these principles, you'll experience health, wealth, and prosperity. He drew people in, sincere and loving parents, with the guarantee of safety and success, offering specific guidelines and rules for every single part of the Christian life. And he kept people in through fear. Fear of how a violation of a principle would destroy their future security and happiness. And it had the appearance of wisdom. But as time moved on, something became clear. It was of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And families discovered that Gothard's guarantee for a successful life and a strong family were empty, despite their close adherence to the seven principles. But the sins of the flesh were unaffected by the system that he had set up. And many families left when they saw the error, but many, many, because of God's, Gothard's cause and effect view of life, would walk away actually blaming themselves, assuming it was due to some failure or violation of a principle on their part. It looked good. It just didn't work. And eventually, even Gothard himself was exposed, with 34 young women coming forward with allegations against him. Even the founder, his own system, was of no value in stopping the indulgence of his flesh. In all of this, Paul demolishes all false teaching that has completely is completely inadequate in fixing our sin problem. They are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Our sinful, rebellious flesh needs to be stopped. But the solutions offered by the false teaching are ineffective in doing so. And this makes sense. Why is that? Because false teaching is, number one, built on fleshly ideas, the mind of man, human tradition. It persuades through fleshly impulses, fear and pride. And so, of course, it will be ineffective 
and stopping fleshly desires. And so the question arises, what can fix our sin problem? If all of these things don't work, all of these things that look wise and look good and, and promote self-made religion, if all of these things are ineffective, what does work? What is the Christian way? As Paul demolishes all false teaching, he leaves one truth standing. Christ is over everything. That he is the fulfillment of the law. He is the head in which genuine growth is found. I refer us back to Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7, where we read, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And in fact, in chapter 3, he is going to begin to unfold the practical realities of a life that is filled with Christ. What that walk looks like. As we turn to chapter 3 in the weeks to come, he's going to show us where genuine growth and joy is found, where genuine change is found. He's going to reveal to us how Jesus changes everything and is far more powerful than any man-made system or religion that you can imagine. That what false teaching cannot do, Jesus can. In the following passages, he'll show us exactly how. That if you are in Christ, you have everything you need to live a life that is worthy of him. We need not look for anything else. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the simplicity of your word. Lord, we confess that we so easily are persuaded by ideas that are contrary to it, that subtly drift from the supremacy of Christ. Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts, that we would be discerning, that we would not be driven by fear and pride, that we would see the substance of Christ, that we would see the genuine growth that comes from Christ, that we would find our hope and our peace and our joy in what Christ and Christ alone offers. Lord, I pray that you would guard us against the pride of our own flesh that subtly creeps within our own hearts, something that none of us are immune to, we thank you, Lord, that you are gracious and merciful and powerful. And by your grace alone, we can live a life and walk a life of faith that is faithful and pleasing to you. In your son's name we pray. Amen.